This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my pleasure today to welcome David Shields to Story Hour. David was born in Los Angeles and completed his undergraduate studies at Brown University. He then received an MFA in fiction from the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. He has written fiction since, including novels and short stories, but in his 14 books, he has explored an astonishing variety of genres, um, including reviews, essays, and autobiography. And he's blurred the distinctions between these, all these genres, exploring the possibilities of a kind of collage of all of these in several books, um, including Remote Reflections on Life in the Shadow of Celebrity, Black Planet, Facing Race During an NBA Season, Enough About You, Notes Toward the New Autobiography, and The Thing About Life is That One Day You'll Be Dead. This last one uh, was described by David in the book as an autobiography of my body, a biography of my father's body, and an anatomy of our bodies together, especially my dad's, his body, his relentless body. So the book is a meditation on living and dying, an excursion into the biology of aging, and a depiction of this very complex relationship between a father and son. Um, I first heard David read from his work when he read one summer at the Breadloaf Writers Conference, um, and during that manifesto, he read uh, during that conference he read from his then newest book, Reality Hunger: A Manifesto. In that book, David asserted that, old conven- that the old conventional form of the novel can no longer satisfy the longings of readers who, immersed every day in a sea of media unreality, can now see through the formal rituals of fiction and long for a more immediate, palpable encounter with the world. David says, what does bring the real to the reader are new artistic forms that use, quote, seemingly unprocessed material, randomness, openness to accident and serendipity, criticism as autobiography, self-reflexivity, a blurring to the point of invisibility of any distinction between fiction and nonfiction. End quote. But that's not all. Reality Hunger makes this argument in its very form. The book itself comprises 618 numbered paragraphs. More than half of these paragraphs are actually extracts from other sources, other essays, other books. One of the sections in the book uh, in, um, makes the argument for David um, about, about what the book is about, and I quote, old and new make the warp and woof of every moment. There is no thread that is not a twist of these two strands. By necessity, by proclivity, and by delight, we all quote, it is as difficult to appropriate the thoughts of others as it is to invent, end quote. And that, by the way, is Emerson. Appropriated. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, at the Breadloaf reading, a certain distinguished writer, uh, who I shall name, leave unnamed, who was sitting directly in front of me, was positively apoplectic by the end of the reading. During the Q&A, in a bright-faced rant, the great writer revealed his terror of a world in which anybody could use anything at all at any time, where the notion of private intellectual property had been effectively discarded. So I won't promise you that David will cause terror and apoplexy among you today, but I can guarantee that the argument in his latest book, Literature Saved My Life, is equally provocative. 
I'm kind of wary of summarizing it because I'll drop spoilers. So I'd rather uh, you have the pleasure of meeting this book yourself. So please join me in welcoming David Shields. I'm going to do a little bit of a roundabout today. I'm going to read from the book. I'm going to talk about the book. I'm going to talk about how I came to write the book. I'm going to talk about earlier books of mine. And I'm going to talk about a book of mine to come. And I hope it will all be held together in a delicate collage. <clears throat> I thought I'd, talk, I'd start by talking about how... Um, about a year ago, I was asked to visit a Jesuit university uh, that shall also rename nameless, but they asked me to talk, spend the week talking about leadership. And there's almost nothing I know less in the world about than leadership. I, 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 in no way would I want to think of myself as any sort of leader, and even less would I want to think of myself as a follower. So I kind of stumbled through the week. Would you like to join or do you want to stand? I just wanted to invite you if you wanted to sit. It'll be a truly riveting talk. If you want to. <laughs> Don't feel compelled, but I didn't want you to feel hesitant to join the crowd. But anyway, I was asked to talk about leadership. I bluffed my way through the week, pretending I was some kind of leader-like fellow. But it forced me in a really interesting... Oh, that's an interest. It, it forced me to ask myself what it is I'm interested in. I'm not interested in leading. I'm definitely not interested in following. And I realized that what I am interested in, I'm very interested in being wrong. That interests me a lot. And I'll try to explain that in the course of the hour this afternoon. I thought I'd start by quoting someone who I often think is wrong, who's not a writer I particularly admire, but who, who wrote a really interesting passage about being wrong. And this is from a, a book called American Pastoral by Philip Roth, which I haven't read, but I've read this paragraph and really like this paragraph. Roth says, you fight your superficiality, your shallowness, so as to try to come at people without unreal expectations, without an overload of bias or hope or arrogance, as untank-like as you can be, sans cannon and machine guns and steel plating half a foot thick. You come at them unmenacingly on your own ten toes, instead of tearing up the turf with your caterpillar treads. Take them on with an open mind, as equals, man-to-man, as we used to say. And yet, you never fail to get them wrong. You might as well have the brain of a tank. You get them wrong before you meet them, while you're anticipating meeting them. You get them wrong while you're with them, and then you go home to tell somebody else about the meeting, and you get them all wrong again. Since the same generally goes for them with you, the whole thing is really a dazzling illusion, empty of all perception. 
an astonishing farce of perception. And yet, what are we to do about this terribly significant business of other people, which gets bled of the significance we think it has and takes on instead a significance that is ludicrous? So ill-equipped are we all to envision one another's interior workings and invisible aims. Is everyone to go off and lock the door and sit secluded like the lonely writers do in a soundproof cell, summoning people out of words and then proposing that these word people are closer to the real thing than the real people that we mangle with our ignorance every day? The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about anyway. It's getting them wrong that is living. Getting them wrong and wrong and wrong, and then on careful reconsideration, getting them wrong again. That's how we know we're alive. We're wrong. Maybe the best thing would be to forget being right or wrong about people and just go along for the ride. But if you can do that, well, lucky you. So that's that passage of Roth, which I think articulates and embodies Roth's work awfully well in about sort of 400 words. And I think it's how he, as a novelist, gets at being wrong, that he has staged and dramatized dozens of novels in which people have an awful lot of trouble understanding each other, loving each other, understanding themselves, loving themselves. And as Vikram said, you know, I started out as a novelist, but over the last sort of 15, 18 years, I've gravitated away from fiction toward nonfiction, then toward kind of literary collage, and from there into a kind of boundary-jumping, genre-blending work. And I think the way that I'm interested in being wrong, the specific way in which wrongness interests me, is that I'm very interested in using myself as a kind of, you might say, a kind of flawed holding tank for the human experiment. That I'm interested in placing myself in, in harm's way, in being complicit, in leading with my own subjectivity, in, in granting my own humanness, my own nakedness, my own uh, flawedness. And so in a series of books, starting in 1996 and continuing through How Literature Saved My Life, I've tried to put myself directly in harm's way. For instance, starting in a book called Remote Reflections on Life in the Shadow of Celebrity, which is a book about mass culture, mass media, celebrity, the transmitted image. I think the easier version of that book would have been that one in which, like Neil Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death. Anyway, that book, Remote, came out about 15 years ago. I try to cop to my own ambivalence about mass culture. I kind of get in there in the mud, and instead of standing up high on a high cathedral and pretending to somehow condescend to mass culture or 
to mass media, I try to explore my own sort of deep love-hate relationship to pop culture. So too in a later book called Black Planet Facing Race During an NBA Season, I try to explore how white men, including myself, project their fears and fantasies onto black men's bodies. To my astonishment, this book was a somewhat controversial book. And, um, you know, again, the easier version of the book would have been one in which I, I wagged a self-righteous liberal finger at the inherent implicit racism of the NBA or written a straightforward kind of sports book. But instead, I'm very interested in placing myself halfway between I don't know what, literature and the culture, myself and the culture, myself and the world. Uh, there's a famous line of Montaigne, the, the, the 17th century essayist, who, who said, every man contains within himself the entire human condition. And that's a rather grandiose phrase, but it's the one that the essayist tries to do justice to, to try to explore every nook and cranny of his or her own psyche, and in so doing, try to get at something that is, pardon the expression, universal. Um, There's a wonderful line I've always loved of William Butler Yeats, who called the artistic activity mirror-turn-lamp, by which he meant, I think, that the artist, the poet, the writer, takes a mirror and looks at himself or herself with unrelenting gaze. And if that gaze goes deeply enough, it becomes a lamp for the reader. And that's, in many ways, uh, what my work tries to do, to look with a lot of rigor and candor and, I hope, sort of nerve and wit at my own failings and flailings and my human needs and, in so doing, make the reader feel less lonely and less freakish and more human. Then <clears throat> a third book I'll, I'll quickly mention is a book called A Thing About Life is That One Day You'll Be Dead, which Vikram mentioned, which is, you know, it's a, it is, as he said, you know, a meditation on mortality. It uses data and philosophy. But also, it also tries to stage the, the Oedipal rage between myself and my father in that book, I'm the sort of whiny, menopausal, middle-aged guy with a really bad back. And my father's this octogenarian, sort of genius tennis player who, at age 95, is winning doubles tournaments. And so there's a kind of complicated flipping of the generations in which I have a, a 15-year-old daughter who's the sort of soccer star, and my father's this 96-year-old tennis champion. I'm the sort of middle-aged nudge in the middle who's having trouble turning the steering wheel without his back hurting. And so, anyway, the thing I like about that book is that, you know, I try, you know, there's a lot of books like, you know, Tuesdays with Maury or whatever, these various sort of corny books, which, you know, hugely sugarize the Oedipal relation. But, you know, if we can grant a book like Oedipus Rex or we can grant a book like Hamlet, why can't we grant and work of autobiographical book-length essay, a book in which an author owns his own complicated feelings toward his father. <clears throat> I thought I'd, ta- I'd, I'd quote a, f- a few passages from Reality Hunger, just a handful of, of passages 
about doubt and contradiction, because if you're going to do this thing I've been talking about, use yourself as a kind of lightning rod or theme carrier or symbolic persona or host, you can't just simply talk about your failings. You can't just talk about your strengths. But the key thing is you have to, I think, use yourself as a kind of warring theater in which you're arguing against yourself. You have to be able to entertain doubt and contradiction. So I thought I'd quote just a few passages about doubt and contradiction from Reality Hunger. To think with any seriousness is to doubt. Thought is indistinguishable from doubt. To be alive is to be uncertain. I'll take doubt. The essayist argues with himself, and the essayist argues with the reader. The essay enacts doubt. It embodies it as a genre. The very purpose of the genre is to provide a vehicle for a saying. When we are not sure, we are alive. We are, I know not how, double within ourselves, with the result that we do not believe what we believe, and we cannot rid ourselves of what we condemn. And lastly, a wonderful line by W.H. Auden, who says, Great art is clear thinking about mixed feelings. So, speaking of mixed feelings, I, I have a former student named Caleb Powell, who was my student about 20-plus 20, 20 years ago. And he and I disagree about everything in the world. He's among the most contentious, disputatious, and confrontational people I've ever met, the possible exception of myself. And he and I are weirdly symbiotically tied We think each other is wrong about everything, but we stay in weirdly close touch. He'll send me an essay he writes, a story, a novel. I'll look at it and send back a kind of begrudging critique. I'll publish a book. He'll do an interview with me, which will somehow segue into a kind of devastating takedown. But we can't sort of get each other out of each other's lives. And so about a year and a half ago, because I am interested in questioning myself, I invited him to go off for a week to a cabin and argue. And we taped, we taped the entire conversation. For we, 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 I think we taped 120 hours of conversation. And we developed a manuscript of 400,000 words. Huge, huge thing, which we spent a year editing down into a very tight, I think, manuscript. And my editor thinks it needs to be shorter still, but I think she's wrong on that one. But it's coming out. It's being published by Knopf in, in, next year, and it's called I Think You're Totally Wrong, A Quarrel. And the essential debate of the book is Caleb always wanted to become an artist, but he overcommitted to life. He's the stay-at-home dad to three young girls. And I always wanted to become a person, but I overcommitted to art. For instance, Caleb was always accusing me, which is true that I don't know how to change attire. That's apparently a major critique of his. Anyway, it's an, it's a, it's an ancient dialogue. It goes from Plato 
and Socrates through Boswell and Johnson, Goethe and Eckerman, um, you know, the, the Car Talk guys, the movie Sideways, the BBC series, um, The Trip. You know, you, you, that form follows through a lot of, of Western culture. Um, <clears throat> and Caleb and I try to extend the form not by just doing one more my dinner with Andre, because that has been done, but it's an extraordinarily visceral book. We really question each other down to our very toes. And um, I was going to read a brief exchange of the book about being right and being wrong, and I wanted to introduce my former tennis doubles partner from high school who is here, my high school friend and nemesis, doppelganger and alter ego, my better self, Jesse Ragen, is going to come join us. So if you could come on up, Jesse. This is uh, Jesse Ragen, who now... <laughs> Jesse now teaches in the Berkeley School District. Where do you teach, Jesse? I teach at Willard Middle School. I teach math at Willard. <laughs> so anyway, Jesse is here. We haven't seen each other for, I think, I don't know, since high school, I think. Have we, have we crossed paths? Maybe it was something like this. Right. But anyway... Um, Jesse is, has been kind enough to volunteer, has been dragooned into, to volunteer to play Caleb in this exchange. And we're talking about a book of Nicholson Baker's called Human Smoke. <clears throat> Nicholson Baker is sympathetic to Quakerism, is essentially a pacifist, and he wanted to give himself the, tough, the toughest possible case to make for pacifism, World War II. Most people would support the Allied effort to stop the Nazis, even Chomsky. Baker doesn't in any way justify what Hitler did, but he wants to show you Roosevelt's and Churchill's warmongering, their death-dealing. The book is trying to show you that finally... If Germans die, if Japanese die, if Americans die, if British soldiers die, it's all human smoke. We're all people. We're all mortal beings. That's the book, and it'd be hard to argue otherwise. I'll argue otherwise. You see it differently? Baker showed the warmongering of the Allies, but the book does not say we are all human smoke. Baker says that despite the degradation war brings, we must fight, we must stop evil at all cost. And that's the message. No, it's not. In the final scene, two Nazi soldiers are outside a concentration camp. One takes a whiff of the ash in the air and says, ah, human smoke. This macabre image contradicts your forced metaphor. You're right to focus on that paragraph, but to me, you're reading it way too literally. If that's all Baker was saying, why would he even have bothered to write the book? Why would Random House have rejected the book? And why would it have received so many reviews like Leon Leon Wieseltier's in the Times Book Review that were beyond negative? The entire strategy of the book, interpolating hundreds of paragraphs, all from different sources, militates against your reading. Baker illustrates the moral ambiguities of the Allies, but in no way does he make a case against World War II. 
Jews in ovens, Jews as candles. We've been there a million times. Six million times. Baker's trying to take you someplace stranger and to me more interesting. Am I a moral relativist and are you a moral absolutist? Is that what this is about? I struggle with that myself. I really like that line of Goethe's. I've never heard of a crime I couldn't imagine committing myself. To me, one way that human beings can become better, or at least one way that art can serve people, is if the writer or the artist shows how flawed he or she actually is. Basically, the royal road to salvation for me lies through an artist saying very uncompromising things about himself. And through reading that relentless investigation, the reader will understand something surprising about himself. I always come back to the idea that we're all bozos on this bus. If my work has value, which I have to believe it does, it's in the realm of helping, or more like forcing, other human beings to confront their, our, shared humanity, flawedness. If every single person in the world read my book... (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I'd be richer than that guy you know who wrote The Art of Racing in the Rain. Garth Stein. Which would be a very good thing. And second of all, people would not, I swear to God, go around killing one another because they'd stop thinking that evil is, quote, out there. That's why it's so important to me to empty out Franzen. Everything he writes is in the service of fighting off any insight into himself and locating instead all shade and shadow elsewhere, out there, the next precinct over. As opposed to evil inside. You know it. The common man will be evil, Voltaire. Those who can make you believe absurdity can make you commit atrocity. Stanley Milgram added the exclamation point with his experiments. Yeah, no, duh. People are like this. Normal people will submit to authority and become sociopaths. Right. And boy, it's Franzen always on his high moral horse. He is to me utter anathema, whereas Wallace at his best was always going deeper into himself, flaying himself alive in order for us to understand ourselves better. That's a pretty big f***ing accomplishment. Okay, give it up for Jesse, everybody. So that was pretty much the argument that Jesse and I had all throughout high school. So it was a pleasure to hear Jesse portray Caleb as well. So I've talked about not being a leader, Ross quote about being wrong, how some of my books try to place myself in harm's way, some passages from Reality Hunger about doubt and contradiction. I flash forward to a book of mine coming out next year. And so after all this sort of theorizing, I thought I should try and show you how I try to make that work in actual practice. So I thought I would, I would now read a couple short chapters from How Literature Saved My Life, my new book, and you can judge for yourself whether this approach works. If these passages work for you, you'll see how I'm using myself to get it, I hope, some larger and interesting human themes. If these passages don't work for you, you'll just think that I'm dwelling on my own deeply flawed humanity. The first 
passage is called um, Negotiating Against Myself. It's hard now to reanimate how viscerally so many people hated George Bush just a few years ago. But looking back on him now, I remember him as a homebody, somebody who doesn't like to travel, travels with his pillow, is addicted to eight hours of sleep a night. So am I. In India, he wasn't sufficiently curious to go see the Taj Mahal. I must admit I could imagine doing the same thing. For his New Year's resolution nine years after for his New Year's resolution nine months after invading Iraq, he said he wanted to eat fewer sweets. He was widely and justifiably mocked for this, but this was also my New Year's resolution the same year. He pretends to love his father, but he hates him. He pretends to admire his mother, but he reviles her. Check and check. He finds Nancy Pelosi sexy, but he won't admit it. See my imaginative relation to Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman. <laughs> he outsources every task he can. He walked into Condi Rice's office and said, Fuck Saddam, he's going down. I could imagine saying this. He loves to watch football and eat pretzels. He did everything he could to avoid serving in the Vietnam War. In 1974, when the war was winding down and the draft was over. I registered as a conscientious objector. As do I, he prides himself on being able to assess people immediately based on their body language. When he has the tactical advantage, he presses it to the limit. When he's outflanked, he is unattractively defensive. I don't negotiate against myself. I'm incapable of embodying this Bush aperçu, but I quote it at least once a month. He's not very knowledgeable about the world. He has trouble pronouncing the names of foreign leaders. He's obsessed with losing those last 10 pounds. (laughs) He's remarkably tongue-tied in public, but supposedly relatively smart in private. He had a lower SAT score than most of his Ivy League classmates. So did I. He wildly overvalues the poetry and motion of athletes. He once said he couldn't imagine what it's like to be poor. I have trouble reading books by people whose sensibility is wildly divergent from my own. He wasted his youth in a fog of alcohol and drugs. I didn't do this, but sometimes I pretend I did. He reads a newspaper by glancing at the headlines, more or less what I do. He loves to get summaries of things rather than reading the thing itself. He's never happier than in the box seat of a ballpark. He takes way too much pride in throwing the ceremonial first pitch over the plate for a strike. He's slightly under six feet tall but pretends he is six feet. I'm barely six feet and claim to be six one. He's scared to death of dying. He was too easily seduced by Tony Blair's patter, 
as was I. His wife is smarter than he is, by a lot. (laughs) Asked by the White House press corps what he was going to give Laura for her birthday, he tilted his head and raised his eyebrows, conveying unmistakably, I'm going to give it to her. Which probably sounds very weird, but if you watch the video, it's impossible to read in, it, in any other way. My wife's name is Lori. He's intimidated by his father's friends. He can express his affection most easily to dogs. He finds the metallics of war erotic. His knees are no damn good anymore, so he can't jog and has taken up another sport, biking. For me, swimming. He loves nicknames. He's not a good administrator. He has a speech disorder. He views politics as a sporting event. He resents the New York Times' role in national life as pseudo-impartial arbiter. In a crisis, he freezes up, has no idea what to do, thinks first of his own safety. Note how I responded to the 2001 Nisqually earthquake. He just wants to be secure and taken care of and left alone, pretty much my impulses. Asked what he was most proud of during his presidency, he said, catching a seven-pound bass. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. Asked in 2001 what's on George's mind now, Laura said, he's always worried about our small lake whether it's stocked with bass, because he loves to fish. There's always some concern. It's too hot, it's too cold. Are the fish not getting enough feed? That's what he worries about. He's lazy, it goes without saying. He hates to admit he's wrong. Every quality I despise in George Bush is a quality I despise in myself. He is my worst self-realized. Asked what's wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton said, I am. So that's the Bush thing. And <clears throat> I'm sure you guys saw those, um, those paintings. Did you guys see those, those self-portraits Bush did? Those were fascinating. I saw um, a reading of those, those paintings as, you know, in every painting that Bush did, he's in some stage of ablution. He's either in the bath or the shower or in front of the mirror shaving. And I saw an analysis somewhere that he was trying to sort of wash off the guilt from, from various wars, which I must admit I found all too credible a reading of that. So anyway, I'm going to read next a, um, a slightly longer Subsection, and this will be the last thing I'll read, and I'll be happy to take any questions or, or comments or, or thoughts you might have. And the, this piece is called Love is a Long, Close Scrutiny. <clears throat> From the sound of things, the girl who lived next door to me my sophomore year of college was having problems with her boyfriend. One night, Rebecca invited me into her room to share a joint and told me she kept a journal, which one day she hoped to turn into a novel. I said Kafka believed that writing in a journal prevented reality from being turned into fiction. But as she pointed out, 
Kafka did nothing if not write in a journal. I liked the way she threw her head back when she laughed. The next day, I knocked on her door to ask her to join me for lunch. Her door was unlocked. She assumed no one would break into her room, and in any case, the door to the dormitory was always locked. Rebecca wasn't in, and neither was her roommate, who had all but moved into her boyfriend's apartment off campus. Rebecca's classes weren't over until late afternoon, I remembered, and I walked in and looked at her clothes and books and notebooks. Sitting down at her desk, I opened the bottom right drawer and came across a photo album, which I paged through only briefly because underneath the album was a stack of Rebecca's journals. The one on top seemed pretty current, and I started reading. The previous summer, she'd missed Gordon terribly and let herself be used on lonely nights by a Chapel Hill boy whom she had always fantasized about and who stroked her hair in the moonlight and wiped himself off with leaves. When when Rebecca returned to Providence in the fall, she knew she wanted romance, and after weeks of fights that went all night and into the morning, she told Gordon she didn't want to see him anymore. Me, on the other hand, she wanted to see every waking moment of the day and night. As a stutterer, I was even more ferociously dedicated to literature, the glory of language that was beautiful and written, than other English majors at Brown were, and I could turn up the lit-crit rhetoric pretty damn high. She loved the way I talked. My stutter was endearing. Her favorite thing in the world was to listen to me rhapsodize about John Donne. She often played scratchy records on her little turntable. This was 1975. And when I said the Jupiter Symphony might be the happiest moment in human history, her heart skipped a beat. Toward my body, she was ambivalent. She was simultaneously attracted and repelled by my strength. She was afraid I might crush her. These are, I swear, near verbatim quotes. I finished reading the journal and put it away, then went back to my room and waited for Rebecca to return from her classes. That night, we drove out to Newport, where we walked barefoot in the clammy sand and looked up at the lighted mansions that lined the shore in the distance. The rich, too, must go to sleep at night, I said, offering Solomonic wisdom. We stood atop a ragged rock that sat on the shoreline. The full tide splashed at our feet. The moon made halos of our heads. I put my hands through her hair and kissed her lightly on the lips. Don't kiss hard, she said. I'm afraid I'll fall. Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, when she worked in the development office, I'd go into her room, shut the door, lock it, and sit back in the swivel chair at her desk. She always left a window open. The late fall wind would be blowing the curtains around, and the Jupiter Symphony was the Jupiter Symphony would always be on the little red record player on the floor. 
She often left wet shirts hanging all over the room. They'd ripple eerily in the wind. On the wall were a few calligraphic renderings of her own poetry. Her desk was always a mess, but her journal, a thick black book, was never very difficult to find. I was 19 years old and a virgin, and at first I read Rebecca's journal because I needed to know what to do next and what she liked to hear. Every little gesture, every minor movement I made, she passionately described and wholeheartedly admired. When we were kissing or swimming or walking down the street, I could hardly wait to rush back to her room to find out what phrase or what twist of my body had been lauded in her journal. I loved her impatient handwriting, her purple ink, the melodrama of the whole thing. It was such a surprising and addictive respite, seeing every aspect of my being celebrated by someone else rather than excoriated by myself. She wrote, I've never truly loved anyone the way I love Dee, and it's never been so total and complete, yet so unpossessing and pure, and sometimes I want to drink them in like golden water. You try to concentrate on your Milton midterm after reading that about yourself. <laughs> sometimes wearing her bathrobe, she'd knock on my door in order to return a book or get my reaction to a paragraph she'd written or read. She'd wish me good night, turn away, and begin walking back to her room. I'd call to her, and we'd embrace, first in the hallway outside our doors, then soon enough in my room, her room, on our beds. I hadn't kissed anyone since I was 12, horrific acne throughout high school. So I tried to make up for lost time by swallowing Rebecca alive, <laughs> biting her lips until they bled, licking her face, chewing on her ears, holding her up in the air, and squeezing her until she screamed. In her journal, she wrote that she'd never been kissed quite like this in her life and that she inevitably had trouble going to sleep after seeing me. I'd yank the belt to her bathrobe and urge her under the covers, but she refused. She actually said she was afraid she'd go blind when I entered her. Where did she learn these lines anyway? Shortly before the weather turned permanently cold, we went hiking in the mountains. The first night, she put her backpack at the foot of her sleeping bag. We kissed softly for a few minutes, then she fell asleep. But on the second night, she put her backpack under her head as a pillow. Staring into the blankly black sky, I dug my fingers into the dirt behind Rebecca's head. And the first time and the second time and the third time and the fourth time and probably the fourteenth time, I came nearly immediately. From then on, I couldn't bring myself to read what she had written. I'd read the results of a survey in which 40% of Italian women acknowledged that they usually faked orgasm. Rebecca wasn't Italian. She was that interesting anomaly, a Southern Jew, but she thrashed around a lot and moaned and screamed. And if she was pretending, I did not want to know about it. She often said it had never been like this before. Every night, 
she'd wrap her legs around me and scream something I thought was German until I realized she was saying, oh, my son, my son. She had her own issues, too, I suppose. We turned up the Jupiter Symphony all the way and attempted to pace ourselves so we'd correspond to the crashing crescendo. I was sitting on top of her and in her mouth, staring at her blue wall, and I thought, my whole body is turning electric blue. She was on top of me, rotating her hips and crying, and she said, stop. I said, stop, and stopped. She grabbed the back of my hair and said, stop. Are you kidding? Don't stop. At the end of the semester, packing to fly home to San Francisco to spend the Christmas vacation with my family, I suddenly started to feel guilty about having read Rebecca's journal. Every time I kissed her, I closed my eyes and saw myself sitting at her desk, turning pages. I regretted having done it, and yet I couldn't tell her about it. What's wrong, she asked. I'll miss you, I said. I don't want to leave. On the plane, I wrote her a long letter in which I told her everything I couldn't bring myself to tell her in person. I'd read her journal. I was very sorry. I thought our love was still pure and we could still be together. But I'd understand if she went back to Gordon and never spoke to me again. She wrote back that I should never have depended on her journal to give me strength. She'd throw it away and never write in it again, and she wanted to absolve me, but she wasn't God, although she loved me better than God could. Anything I said, she would believe because she knew I'd never lie to her again. Our love, in her view, transcended time and place. Well, sad to say it didn't. The night I returned from San Francisco, she left a note on my door that said only come to me, and we tried to imitate the wild abandon of the fall semester. But what a couple of weeks before had been utterly instinctive was now excruciatingly self-conscious, and the relationship quickly cooled. She even went back to Gordon for a while, although that second act didn't last very long either. It was, I see now, exceedingly odd behavior on my part. After ruining things for myself, By reading her journal, I made sure I ruined things for both of us by telling her that I had read her journal. Why couldn't I just live with the knowledge and let the shame dissipate over time? What was, what is the matter with me? Do I just have a bigger self-destruct button and like to push it harder and more incessantly than everyone else? Perhaps. But also... The language of the events was at least as erotic to me as the events themselves. And when I was no longer reading Rebecca's words, I was no longer very adamantly in love with Rebecca. This is what is known as a tragic flaw. So thanks for listening. Um, I'd be happy to take any questions that you might have, observations, journal entries, anything. (laughs) Anybody have a thought or question, comment? I don't know if a lot of you are writing students or writing faculty or... Um, I'm just curious when you write... Like, say, the George Bush riff or something like that or... um, there's a wonderful essay 
I mean, do you struggle with that? I mean, are you someone immersed in pop culture who isn't sure how much you want to use of it in your own work? Are you adverse to it? What's your sense of it? Right. Your point is that perhaps it'll have a, a relatively short shelf life, is your fear? Right. I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't mean to cut you off, but um, it's a very complicated question, of course, and I think there are many schools of thought. I think of a wonderful thing, there's a, I forget, David, Wall, David Foster Wallace has written about this many times when he was a graduate student at the University of Arizona, perhaps 30 years ago. I forget what professor he was studying with, but the professor was telling his class of students, and it was an a unusually talented class uh, of Robert Boswell, Robert Boswell, Antonia Nelson, Peter Turchi, David Foster Wallace, and all of these students who, who now are or would be around 50, early 50s. This was the early 80s. All these students were writing stories about the dealt with pop culture, TV, movies. And professors from an earlier generation apparently criticized all of these students for, he thought, you know, sort of tarting up their work with all this pop minutia. But when the students went back and looked at this professor's work, it was absolutely saturated with the pop culture of his generation. So that he didn't think of it as pop culture, he thought of it as, as mythos. And so I think, you know, what is one generation's mythology maybe is the next generation's trash and vice versa. The whole challenge, of course, is to take the, the particular and make it feel universal. And the challenge of a writer is to impose his or her consciousness on the age in which you live. And so the way of doing that is not flying up into some imperial, you know, imperial realm in which one could never say Sarah Palin or Michelle Bachman or the Jupiter Symphony or John Donne or uh, you know, George Bush. But the challenge would be to contextualize and you might say mythologize and universalize those things so it's in no way merely journalism or reportage but you are trying to get at some larger thing so for instance you know in my piece on bush the goal is not me or george bush it's trying to get i mean the whole point of that piece i hope is at the last line for i love that line of gk chesterton you know he was asked what's wrong with the world, he said, I am. I just think that's the most amazing line ever, where he's, you've got to be able to find in yourself the riot of the world. That's the, the Goethe line, you know, there's, I've, you know, I've never, you know, there's never has, has been a crime I couldn't imagine myself committing. And I think that is a crucial motor of my work. And so I'm not for just, Putting, I mean, I just write the way I write, and I don't consciously put in huge drams of pop culture just to make the work accessible, but to the degree I'm aware of something, if it's a very obscure reference to, you know, Blaise Pascal, who's just as real to me as, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, I'll, I'll bring in both of them. And I think a lot of the thing I'm interested in 
that Vikram was talking about had to do with collage. I'm interested in bringing together everything simultaneously so John Donne and George Bush can occupy the same space. So I think the challenge isn't to only mention Homer and Sophocles in your work. It's to write about the world that is real to you and make it transcend the particular and the temporal through the force of the intelligence that you bring to bear upon it. You know, if we go back and read Petronius's Satyricon or if we read Shakespeare's King Lear or we read, you know, Proust's A Remembrance of Things Past, they're just, there's zillions of, of references to those times, but we still read the works because it, it moves through time and place to a larger point. What other thoughts or questions do people have? Again, I go back to David Foster Wallace, who's not a particularly heavy influence on my work, but I sometimes find him an immensely useful articulator of things. He was a great, great writer of essays to me. And Wallace was asked a a long time ago, what's so great about writing? Why does literature matter? And he said that we're existentially alone on the planet. I can't know what you're thinking and feeling, and you can't know what I'm thinking and feeling. And he said, writing at its best is a bridge constructed across the abyss of human loneliness. Then Wallace went on to say that in fiction, there's all these contrivances of plot and character and setting and imagined beings. And don't worry, we can get through those those contrivances. And a lot of my work tries to to marry itself quite strongly to the first part of Wallace's statement and is is hugely skeptical toward the second half of what he is saying. The thing I'm trying to do in my work and the writers I tend to love to read and teach and champion are writers who foreground the question of how they solve the problem of being alive, that the work is manifestly, overtly, melodramatically about that very question. Samuel Johnson was asked, um, Samuel Johnson said, um, a work of literature can either allow us to escape existence or teach us how to endure existence. And the kind of work I try and do is almost what's called sort of almost like accidental philosophy or a kind of a poor man's philosophy. It, It exists in a bit of a hybrid camp between confession, reportage, journalism, fiction, and, and meditation, and which, um, you know, there's a whole handful, a whole galaxy of writers I really love from, you know, Blaise Pascal's Ponce's to Maggie Nelson's Bluettes, in which the writer is overtly wrestling with, you know, the manifest questions of existence through their own humble life. So that is the larger project I'm trying to get at. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thanks for the question. Time. Perhaps one last question and we'll wrap it up. If not, we can call it an afternoon. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.